Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to Conversations in Connectivity. I'm Ryan Carlson, your host. This is a podcast for the IoT professionals and product leaders responsible for connectivity operations within their organization and interested in learning how others are harnessing connectivity, controlling costs, and scaling successfully in the industries they serve. In this episode, we're looking at how connectivity decisions are made in the oil and gas industry and the factors that influence investments in new technology. The conversation is less about what they're building, but why an industry that's resistant to change and slow to adapt new technologies is pushing forward with pretty big investments in tech that's reliant on connectivity. To make the most sense of how change happens, we need to address an important question. Who picks up the phone when energy companies call looking for answers? Well, I guess that depends on who's asking the question, but when somebody's looking for technology-based solutions from an energy company, look no further than the other end of that line with today's guests, Jeff and Scott from Logix Sales and Marketing. Jeff is the president and founder of Logix and Scott Kennedy, the vice president. They share their deep industrial knowledge and energy sector experience working on behalf of energy companies to demystify how decisions are being made today. We're also joined by Kenta Yasakawa, the chief technology officer at Soracom, who is the one who picked up the phone when Japanese utility company Nichigas needed to connect over a million smart gas meters with some pretty unique challenges. Around the halfway mark of this interview, we opened up the call to our live community audience for an Ask Me Anything or an AMA, and there's some really great questions, and some of them just might be a question that you would have wanted answered. This episode is brought to you by Soracom, a global connectivity service provider that believes the fastest way to cost savings and scale is when customers are in full control of their connectivity operations. Experience self-service, pay-as-you-go global connectivity without a contract today at Soracom.io. Signing up for an operator account takes less than a minute. And now, on to the interview. You sit between the technology companies and the oil and gas industry companies out there. So when someone picks up the phone, why are they calling you? Customers look at Logix as a consultant within the energy industry and other vertical markets for leading edge components. So when they're building a system or subsystem at an OEM level, uh, they will need assistance in designing in their products or the components into their systems. And that's where we come into play is the logic staff is a technical staff. Generally, everybody's has an electrical engineering degree. So they're not only competent from a component level, but they have a good understanding of the customer system requirements in these systems and new designs. Scott, you've got a background in oil and gas. Let us, uh, tell us a little bit about what that background looked like. Yeah, I have a background in electrical engineering. I was hired in the oil and gas industry to develop technology to collect the data from the well while drilling and, and create logs for the customer. Before, before I was in R&D, my company wanted me to work out in the field to get a feel for what it is to be on a rig, to run a job. So I did 15 months working offshore, mostly offshore Brazil and the Atlantic Ocean. So I would set up the sensors, set up tools, program them, run the job, collect the data, and then inevitably turn that data into the customer. 
they say that product development empathy for the user is a big part of making good products. How did that 15 months out in the field prepare you for the conversations you have today at Logix? Yeah, no, that it was a great experience. It was with Schlumberger, oil and gas services company. It helped me while I was there doing development, it helped me understand what it was to be on the rig, to have to actually program the tools. So when I developed the, the, the technology, the receivers were used to collect the data. I had been in the end user seat and it helps me today at Logix to be able to not only have the experience of being on a rig, but also the experience of designing and developing the tools used to do the job. Jeff, one of the things when we first spoke, I asked you, what is it that people start leaning into? What types of conversations do they get interested in? And first was how to make a perfect Manhattan, which I would be interested in hearing that as well. But when the oil and gas companies are picking up the phone, why is it that they're interested in talking now? What is it that's unique about our current situation that is pushing them to invest or reinvest in technology? Today, the energy industry likes to rely on proven technologies that have been around for years. So introducing new technologies is, is a challenge in and of itself. But so some of the carabouts within the energy industry persist from decades ago through today with maybe perhaps a little bit of a different twist. Um, but the big issues that have always been present is like reliability, environmental concerns like industrial temperature, well beyond industrial temp, 175 degrees C, 200 degrees C, environmental issues like salts and shock vibration. Those have all been around forever. But when we're working with the industry design engineers today, they've got a lot of legacy equipment out there that have got like heart and can and serial Modbus type protocols that we've got to, to interface with. But we're trying to connect up new technologies, whether it be cellular or other wireless technologies. And those technologies are obviously new, but interfacing to the existing equipment could be a challenge because that's not always where some of the newer equipment is theoretically built. So we've got to, if you will, bring the component supplier in with the conversation of what our actual customers need. And we're good at that. We try to help our manufacturers build products that will actually be implemented within our industries, particularly the energy industry. So how much of a balance does it become knowing that you can't upturn the apple cart and take a bunch of old PLCs and old legacy equipment versus replacing it with new equipment? If there's reliability and people trust a particular way of doing things, is there an incremental approach or is it a rip it all out and put something new in? Ripping it all out would be probably ideal in a lot of circumstances, but the inherent investment that's already there is usually hard to, to just trash. So there's, I would say a little bit of everything involved with some of these conversations, but there's generally newer attributes that will bring customers around to wanting to engage deeper on the newer technologies like security. Security is a huge issue. You could probably talk for the next hour just on security, but also like cloud management, which hasn't obviously been something that was thought of decades ago and is relatively recent, has allowed for a lot more monitoring in real time and allowing the folks back at the corporate office to be able to keep tabs on the remote 
equipment and how it's operating and et cetera. So speaking of users, Scott, who is it in the field that is looking to R&D to make their jobs easier? And what are some of those trends that you're seeing right now, given that they're flush with cash and willing to throw money at solving the future problems of oil and gas? The big driver for connecting and having a new technology on the rigs is safe. If you, when I worked offshore, I got on a helicopter. I had to do safety training just to, to fly on the helicopter to get to the rig. If you can imagine being on a rig, there's lots of heavy pipes swinging around and uh, potential for blowouts and things like that. So if you can reduce the amount of people on a rig, if you could automate the rig, that's really the driver behind connecting and upgrading the technology. If you could run these jobs, if you could do what I did years ago by flying to a rig, if you could do that from the safety of an office, instead of having to put people in that environment, you're going to be much safer. You're going to save cost. So that's, I'd say the big driver to the technology. It's to help really the safety and efficiency of the operation. So this isn't just about remote access for running automated sequences. But is, that a, is there any aspects like the construction industry is really looking at connectivity for worker safety, new types of PPE to someone fell off a building or knowing when someone's in a dangerous zone? Do you see any interplay or any vertical uh, crossover in what's being done in construction and what's being done in oil and gas for the safety side? Absolutely. Yeah, I think they're very synergistic, very similar, both in remote places, not always within cellular range, having environmental challenges in terms of heat or extreme cold, having a long way to get to the project. All those things factor into being to the advantages of being able to connect and do things remotely. Okay. Where do you see the actual technology itself evolving? So knowing that there are some things that may be so old, where do you see the first dominoes to fall on legacy technology and the adoption of new forms of technology that may not have had the incremental evolution, but is there anything revolutionary that you see coming around the corner? Like Jeff said, it's a conservative industry. There's, in, there's issues with security. That's a, it's a big one. There's reliability is always important. So anytime you introduce new technology, there's a long it's a long road to make sure it's, it works and it's proven. So it is changing, it is evolving, but it's definitely incremental. I don't see a big sweeping change overnight in, in the oil and gas industry. Kenta, you've worked a, a significant amount in the utility space, like with Nietzsche Gas and some of the other utilities, both just overseas, not here in North America, from a security or reliability perspective, like where did connectivity come into that conversation? Yeah, so I've, we have been offering connectivity platform focusing on connecting those devices in the field securely to cloud environment. So what, you, what Jeff, you mentioned about the security and cloud management, these are common requirements, common demands we hear from the customers in oil and gas and utility industry. As Ryan mentioned, I, we have worked with Nichi Gas. They have deployed 1 million gas meters nationwide in Japan, and they have been using LP1 technology called Sigfox and also cellular LP1 LTE Cat M to connect those gas meters to the cloud. And the, yes, the, the common concern was definitely one thing is security. And they have 
we have a technology to make sure all those devices are securely connected to customer's cloud environment, not necessarily to the internet. So that actually relieved all the customer's concerns. And also since they have a legacy gas meters, they can't replace as we already, uh, as Jeff and Scott already mentioned. So they took an approach of adding an additional network control unit attached to legacy gas meter so that they can collect data and send that to their AWS-based cloud environment. I have seen a lot of uh, commonalities and what Scott and Jeff were talking about. For those of us who are not in the field or even in the oil and gas industry themselves, like what do some of these things that they're doing out in the field, what are they doing and why would they need uh, not even necessarily connectivity, but what's driving some of the, the research and development or newer products that you're seeing? What I see is it, there's lots of different segments within oil and gas. It really depends on, like you mentioned, there's exploration, there's drilling, there's upstream, downstream, or the refineries. And so really the answer will depend on which segment you're talking about. But if you talk about just the drilling side, their main concern, they've always had connectivity, but being able to automate the functionality on the rig, I think is what's driving most of the new development, being able to have not just data being sent back. We've always had data, we've always had satellite connectivity on rigs for years, but how do we now not just have data sent back? How do we have command and control of the rig in real time and have a central office in a secure environment where somebody can operate multiple jobs? If you can imagine one engineer running five, six, seven rigs at one time. So where I was one person, one of per person of, on a four person team flying to the physical one rig, I could now do five or six jobs remotely. That's what's driving on the, on, from the drilling standpoint, the technology and the bandwidth need. This sounds a lot like the rail industry where they've got their inspectors and the maintainers and each maintainer is responsible for 150 miles worth of track and every crossing and all of the stuff on there and drive time and right. every truck roll and every little thing like requires someone to go out there. And that's an industry that's just as old. So you've got an industry that has got people that have, it's been a highly manual inspection process. So are they consolidating into SOC centers as like secure operations command centers, like on the movies with all the screens around them? Yeah. Now, is that what it's turning into? Yeah, really, it is. Yeah, you can probably see it online if you search for it. There's these rooms with hundreds of screens and they're trying to run, operate multiple drilling operations from a central location. And again, the reason is it's safer, it's more efficient, it's more cost-effective. Uh, so that's really the holy grail or where they're trying to go is where you don't really need anybody at the well site at all. That's really where they're trying to get. But you still need people that can jump in a helicopter and go out to a remote site. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to need people to set up, rig up, troubleshoot, that kind of thing. But the idea is to have it as close to 100% automated as possible. So let's walk through each of those different pieces. I really like that. So if, if you've got, was it exploration or discovery? Yep, you, where you go and search and you want to survey a piece of land, whether that be land or a subsurface on, in the ocean, you want to see what's in the, in the resource that you own. That's like using seismic technology, typically. That's exploration. Then you typically drill that the drilling. Once you decide where you want to drill and what you want to produce, then you deploy a drilling rig you drill for that oil and gas. And then once you have the well constructed, there may be additional things to do to evaluate the formation. There's wireline tools, for example, that can do a little more detailed 
formation evaluation to all help the, uh, the client determine how to, what they're, what they have down there and how they should produce it. And then once you figure that out and you come with a production plan, then you put your, your production rig or, or your production platform on the well site. And then you want to collect that, that asset. And then it goes into refineries and inevitably into products. So I'm hearing there's a whole lot of frenetic activity up front. They're scrambling around looking. Then you've got all of the drilling and all the people you all assemble. And then everyone goes away and it's supposed to just work, right? You're just printing money somewhere out in a remote place. Yeah. Maybe a better way to say it, there's a ton of investment by the oil and gas companies up front. If you can imagine the cost to, to construct the well, produce it, that's a lot of people just look at the profits they're making on the back end, but they forget how much was invested just to buy the asset, take the risk to produce the asset. They don't always produce. And then the construction of it and et cetera. So there's a lot of upfront work to realize that the downstream profit, but yeah, it's a high risk, high reward game for sure. So there's a, there's actually a, a pretty good question here about if automation's a primary driver of connected equipment and field. It's really comes down to identifying the value proposition and explaining it in terms of dollars and how to make sure that the client can actually save money. There's a lot of built-in things that I would say that the energy industry is probably not used to understanding is like they could do like flexible and future-proof allowing for updates in the field rather than having to roll a truck and get a technician out there to upgrade something. They could do it over the air, if you will. Getting alerts about equipment that could possibly be failing soon, like a motor, if you will, starting to go out. There's ways to monitor a lot of this electromechanical equipment to make sure that we're in the know before it fails, which will save money if you can do the preventive maintenance on it. There's a lot of things like that, that I think that we as an industry could do better explaining. And that's where a technical sales consultant like Logix comes into play. What are the things that will get people picking up the phone and having a sense of urgency? I think you better go back to looking at each sub vertical within the energy industry. For example, pipeline, their obvious would be a leak detection, right? Um, oh, yeah. But if it was at the rig, you might be looking for hazardous gas or detection to make sure it's not getting ready to blow up. But there's all their oody things that go into it. If you're on a fracking job, you're probably concerned about having quality control over some of the inputs, water, chemicals, et cetera, like that should be monitored. You could have a tank leveling application and obviously the dashboard or the alert is going to be how much is in the tank. And that kind of thing. So it, it totally depends upon the sub vertical and what their care about is going to be. It sounds like the value chain is so similar to so many other industries, different commercial industries. Yeah. How much is left in the barrel of this particular fluid? How much hydraulic pressure do we have? What's the current operating speed motor vibration monitoring analysis to say this pump is probably going to fail in the next two days. You might want to switch, swap it out on the maintenance cycle rather than on a production cycle. Is there anything that surprises you about oil and gas when it comes to you know, needs that they particularly have? 
don't know if it's surprising, but I will say once you prove a technology, the industry tends to adopt it like it. There's not like standards necessarily. And if you look like a military industry, there's like military standards for how you qualify a component or is it a mil spec, whatever. The oil and gas industry tends to, it's kind of part of their IP, how they prove a technology that's kind of customer to customer dependent. And you really have to work closely with these customers to meet their needs and understand what their way of qualifying and approving a technology is. But once you get through those wickets, they tend to stay with it for the long term. So I think that's something maybe a lot of people don't realize, maybe that aren't familiar with the industry or might be surprising. It's not surprising to logics because we can know that market well, but that yeah. might be surprising for someone that's never worked there. In an industry like oil and gas, is it an industry where everyone is looking at what everyone else is doing and they're all learning together? Or is it a secret, everyone has their own special sauce on how they do something better than someone else? I would say it's competitive and the people don't like to let their competitors know how they're getting things done in general. So they all know it's an expensive upfront cost, but I'm hearing their ability to control costs on the back end is maybe how they're more profitable than a competitor or not, or what are some of the areas in which they're building that competitive advantage? Uh, reliability, efficiencies, like you said, how are they able to do it? That once they, once an individual company figures it out, they tend to not let that, they don't want that to get out necessarily. And there's obviously collaboration. I don't mean to say the industry doesn't collaborate, but when it comes to competitive advantages, that's typically not something they, they want to publicize of how it's happening and how they're doing it. I have several questions I wanted to ask. In terms of the remote site monitoring, we have been working with IHI, for example. They have a control center and they are monitoring gas turbines deployed in different parts of the world. In their case, I think they have already designed those the facilities and turbines to be able to be uh, monitored by sensors and already uh, remotely manageable. But when it comes to working with uh, legacy uh, sites or legacy oil and gas rigs or uh, sites, uh, are they ready to uh, monitor? I mean, are they, do they already have sensors installed and you just can connect the gateway or do you need to install those sensors to be able to retrofit devices and facilities? There's a fair amount of sensors deployed definitely within the energy industry, but then the question is, is it connected? And then I think probably the bigger question that's being asked now is should there be more edge computing to manipulate the data at the edge prior to uploading it to the cloud. And then once you go through that Q and A about how the data is going to travel and where it's going to go and how it's going to get there, then it becomes possibly that the sensor could be upgraded and in or obviously the edge computing deployed so that the whole conversation kind of gets started with that one sensor and then other sensors that we could you know, deploy to help out with the areas that we talked about, security, safety, reliability, et cetera. Yeah, it, that, that makes sense. The edge computing can collect data locally and process it and just to send out the event, especially when it comes to remote site that doesn't have cellular coverage, you may have to work with satellite. We started to also support satellite messaging services, but bandwidth and frequency of messaging is limited. So you can't all just always send data out to cloud. It makes sense to do edge processing and apply machine learning logics and send out events. That's really good to know. 
You also mentioned the hazardous uh, environment, like somewhere that the oil leaks or gas leaks are happening. And we have also a customer in Japan, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. They have designed a robot that actually goes into those dangerous locations and work on some things that a human can, shouldn't be doing because of the risk. Do you see that also similar use cases happening in, in your customers or your client base? Absolutely. There's hazardous certification areas and there's classifications and divisions and zones and everything that the oil industry deploys. So there's definitely a concern there for sure. If they could roll a robot versus a a truck and a human, I'm sure they would do it. That's very cool. Yeah. And I'm sure there there is something that we can do in collaboration. Maybe we can introduce Mitsubishi or anyway, we are connecting devices, but also we are trying to connect people and our customers and partners on our platform. So that'll be great. So I've got a question about the level of software development that is now in what is maybe typically been a hardware world. Where have you seen software coming in? What are software projects looking like and how are they bridging those two worlds? There's lots of software development. Like we talked about the seismic industry, for example, if you imagine that it's lots and lots of data, they visualize the data, they have rooms, you can walk into a conference room with monitors everywhere and immerse yourself in the sub formation and see what the asset looks like. The, the oil and gas industry has been very good at software development for many years. So I don't, I think as far as what's new, it's like we were talking about more of the connectivity, the edge computing, doing analysis at the device to do preventative maintenance or make decisions without having to rely on a high bandwidth data connection. That's probably where the new development's headed, I would say. Is there just as much mobile app development as there is web development? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above, it all applies. Is it a build buyer partner world in oil and gas? I think it's everything. A, where it doesn't exist, obviously you have to build and make your own, like we talked about earlier, where there's, where there's not a lot of off the shelf solutions that meet the harsh environment requirements. They have to make it cause it doesn't exist. And then when the industry can use something off the shelf and it, and it works great, that they, they will, the industry will, because a lot of times it's time to market for, if you have a specific job that you're trying to address a specific challenge. And if you can come up with a solution first, you can get the, you can get the job, if you will. In those cases, they will partner or use off the shelf by type decision. I'd imagine it's just going to be like the, like IPV ratings or heat index or all of those different environmental conditions. Sounds like the tech stack doesn't really matter as long as it's secure and as long as it meets the environmental conditions. Yeah, the environmental is a bit, one of the harder parts of a lot of what they have to do. Harsh environment, for sure. We got some great questions in our AMA. Jason, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Yeah, hi. Jason here, a long-time caller, first-time listener. But I had a question as it pertains to asset tracking. So one of the things that we see in similar industries is that large equipment theft is pretty prevalent. Is that something that the oil and gas industry are facing on any kind of city clip? And if so, is there... An asset tracking trend that you've seen that's going in to help combat that? I, yes, to answer your question, that asset tracking has been part of the industry for a long time. I'm not as familiar with theft issues. I'm sure there are because of where they're operating, but um, there's lots of companies that specialize in asset tracking solutions specific for oil and gas equipment. 
designed to help handle harsh environment or be integrated into the type of uh, equipment that's used in the oil and gas field. As far as trends, I don't, I think it's just like the rest of the industry. People are trying to more accuracy, more be able to monitor more granularity, more reliability. Those are probably the trend. I think the biggest thing about asset tracking for the oil industry is just to keep track of their assets. It's a lot of remote work, equipment's deployed and new managers come and go and they're trying to keep a, keep tabs on it all. And I think it's a challenge. Yes. Hi, I just had a quick question. What to ask. So other than like kind of oil and gas monitoring, I was wondering if there are any other areas of tax detection, such as like weather patterns, ocean level changes or earthquake detection that will affect how the day-to-day of drilling and just detecting anomalies that sensors can be introduced. I know there was a project back when I was in working at Solberger to have a way to do a quick disconnect from a wellhead in the event of a hurricane in the Gulf, for example, and that's public on the website now, but I think they rely on weather, what's available for, in terms of weather reporting to make those decisions. I can't think of sensor specific development that where, where they're trying to detect weather patterns local, locally to the unit. There's obviously like detection of overheating and overpressure, those type of things. Yeah. Like big data I've seen is seismic across a log correlation. If you're, if you have multiple wells on a certain asset and you want to try to get a better view of what's in the formation, you can, you can use surrounding well data to then interpret what's in, in the other areas that you haven't drilled yet. So that's not necessarily weather related, but I don't know if there's other environmental cross correlation data that they, that is being looked at. I'm, I'm sure there's projects for that. There's always big data projects, the specifics of it, I'm not sure. sure. You're asking questions about beyond oil and gas. Let's, the elephant in the room is the energy um, giants are shifting more towards renewable energy products and ways to, if you will, transform their business. So there's going to be a whole host of new things that are going to be coming down from our traditional oil and gas customers looking at the renewable business and trying to build new products and capabilities and services associated with renewables. That sounds like connectivity is ridiculously important if you're triangulating or you're pulling in sensors from across different regions in the same field, because it is a reserve and probably going to see changes in one area that'll affect the other rather than driving back home, getting all your USB sticks and then correlating all the data, you can just see stuff mm-hmm. live happening right away. This ties into Richard's next question. So go ahead, Richard. Hey guys, thanks for, uh, for sharing your insights today. Yeah, my, my question was really around, I, when I think of oil and gas, I think of a really diverse range of physical locations where the work is being done. You've got metropolitan areas where you've got storage and transship points. You've got rural areas where maybe they're doing fracking. You've got oceanic transport and exploration. So how do companies like this think about pinning connectivity and access to and transmitting data in those kinds of diverse environments? How how do they manage all of that? With a diverse set of wireless uh, protocols to meet all their individual needs. That's, it was a blending of technologies. I can't say everything's going to be answered with, uh, with satellite connection or cellular or Bluetooth or LoRaWAN or 
could be Sigfox. You can't say that it's dependent upon the, the application, where it is, the asset that's being monitored or tracked. So there's a lot that goes into that answer. Yeah. And so I can imagine that would put tremendous pressure on an organization to try to make sure that all the pieces of that ecosystem of communication were working and with uptime and being able to monitor and manage. That just sounds really complex to me. Yeah. The, the suppliers or manufacturers that can support that end-to-end -end solution from satellite down to Bluetooth, if you will, definitely rise to the top when it comes to being able to solve the full complexity of issues related to connectivity. Yeah. Sounds like the perfect application for blended networks. Thanks. Yeah. We have experienced and learned from that, uh, from, uh, by working with customers as well. So the, uh, the customer that I mentioned, Nichias, they started with Sigfox and then realized they need to also combine cellular network. So mm -hmm. I, we believe in that the platform service needs to be able to support multiple connectivity options so that we can cover different use cases. We have also talked with a, a gas company in Europe. They also need to integrate satellite, but also they need to use cellular. That's why we are trying to offer one single platform that can cover multiple options and uh, one single integration can uh, support all these different options. So it's good to confirm the demand is there. Right. Yeah, you have to meet country certification requirements too. So what yeah. what's certified for North America is not going to work, Brazil, et cetera. It's the issue that faces the whole industry 4.0 movement where you've got a thousand different vendors, actually it's sometimes even hundreds in the same factory setting and each has its own portal, its own login, its only way to manage a device, a different report to look at. That has been the growing pains of the, the mid-2000s and now we're in a world where there are so many solutions, tying them all together seems to be a big challenge. So as someone who sources all of these different solutions, how much does interoperability come into play with these oil and gas companies and the solutions that you're, you're recommending to, to be built or bought? It's a big issue, especially when it has to be deployed out into the field. It's architected, if you will, out in the corporate environment, if you will, not in the field. And then it's deployed out into the field and the technicians in the field obviously weren't involved with the design of the device that you're trying to deploy. So you have to make it relatively simple to do. So it, it needs to, if you will, operate right out of the box pretty quick. Do you see any trends in cybersecurity developing specifically within the oil and gas industries? What that, Chuck? Sure. Cybersecurity is a big issue for everything, everybody, every industry, especially when you have prized assets that cause world wars and conflicts that we're seeing today. I'm sure it's easy to imagine what could happen if a pipeline was hacked and natural gas was cut off to Europe and there could be large geopolitical problems that are a result of such shenanigans. But yes, it's a, it's an issue for sure. And that's why we mentioned security is such a major issue. That it brings up an interesting point on the adoption curve. I think we've all, we all remember when you'd say cloud and anyone IT would go, whoa, unsecured, put stuff in the cloud. You'd be an idiot to do that. Uh, my 
perception is that we've, we've rounded that corner, but for a more conservative industry like oil and gas, what is the perception of cloud plus security? I think you even got to go back to wired versus wireless at some point in the conversation, because it was 20 years ago when the oil industry thought anything wireless was just going to be able to be hacked and compromised because the, the communication wirelessly was not reliable. And the default was that a physical cable connection was going to be more secure for the obvious purposes. Yes, the cloud conversation actually mirrors that conversation, but as we move forward, we're slowly being able to address the industry with these new technologies. So anything that can both address security and put and de-risk the perceptions of cloud is probably where you're seeing the most advancement. It's definitely helpful for sure to get the customers to adopt new technologies or if you will, a cloud platform. Hi, Jake Martin here in the San Francisco Bay area. If we can come back to renewables for a second, I actually had a question. It's really interesting that came up and I know one of the challenges for renewables is peaks and valleys in generation, transmission, storage. It just doesn't work uh, in the same way. And I am curious if you're seeing um, any emerging technical solutions that can help to smooth that out and ideally make delivery of power generated by renewables something that we can experience more consistently and use more easily. Yeah, there's a lot energy storage is a big push where they can put excess energy in, into a storage system. There's lots of development. And I wouldn't say that's unique to the oil and gas industry. There's lots of that being done outside of the oil and gas industry, just to be able to handle peak demand or sag and supply lots of OEMs in our territory, let alone the rest of the United States well, are working on that. And that, that seems to be the, the answer most people are turning to is some kind of peak storage. So they can handle those, the sags. You're also seeing applications like bid mining that is heavily power intensive being located at the energy source for a low demand period. And they turn on the Bitcoin servers and computers and make them run during those downtimes, if you will. Awesome. Thank you so much. So a little bit about logics. Who is it that you would be able to help if there's people out here listening to what we're talking about and they wanted to learn more, who, who should be reaching out to a company like logics? Our focus is on the OEM customers developing the next generation equipment. All right. And so is there a specific verticals other than oil and gas that you find yourself in, in those circles a lot more and would be able to represent those OEMs best? Yeah, you bet. So the different verticals that we support are telecommunications, military, automotive, medical, industrial, and general. Of course, we mentioned energy. There's some verticals, sub verticals, if you will, within the industrial world, like metering we're heavily engaged with white goods, appliances, if you will, that need to be connected and or monitored. What else would I miss, Scott? You get a lot. Aerospace is kind of part of the military, but yeah, in our geography, there's lots of different industries. We try to try to help cut, that's who we help. We help 
OEMs that are looking for technology solutions and we help manufacturers of those technologies get their product in front of those OEMs. That's really our job and really just to be a technical consultant during that development process. What's the hardest part about telling the story of an engineering led product and then marrying it to a business challenge? Where do you, how do you navigate that process? I think making it applicable to the, to what the customer's trying to do. If I talk about the great features and capabilities of some new cellular module, but it, it only operates to a 40 degree C and it requires an environment with no multipath and whatever it may be, then, you know, that's not going to be interesting. That's going to waste someone's time. So understanding your audience and understanding the attributes of the technology solution and how it fits that that's where I think we find our customers find value in how we operate. I'm going to channel my professional sales team here. And as people that are out on the front lines, actually selling and getting out in front of people, what types of information do you like to be armed with to make you the most effective when you're out pitching? I like to have roadmaps like where we see the manufacturer that we're presenting the technology to. I like to have, understand where they're heading and what they, where they see their future. And then we try to make that align with the OEM's future and their roadmap. And if they're not aligned, try to find where we could bridge that gap because you can't fit a square peg into a round hole, understanding where someone wants to go and where the technology I'm presenting is trying to go, then you're not wasting anyone's time. So I think that's what I like to know is where a manufacturer wants to go with their products and what markets they want to serve. And that, that makes it easier to find the right homes. So it's not about having a piece of technology that does something at a single point in time but it's marrying up companies where you can show their roadmap aligns with the, that manufacturer, that OEM, right? Like you need to be able to show they're here for the long haul. Right. That's the fun part. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. The customers go into a design or initiate a design because they're trying to add a feature or improve performance of their product. So we are savvy enough to know what the, what their system is accomplishing for the current generation. And then we have conceptual and architectural discussions with customers about where they want to take their new design. And then it's up to us to educate those customers on, Hey, this is going to really add value to your system. If you decide to design in this component. Know that it's like an average of 7.4 yeses to get anywhere in business these days. Is that number growing? Is it shrinking? And who are the typical voices that you need to get involved to even get any forward momentum? We like to start with engineering. That's what we get out of bed to do primarily every day is just to work with engineers. So sometimes the answer relies at the CTO, but sometimes it relies with the technician to get the ball rolling. But in general, we're going to work with the full hearing team from the CTO on down. And obviously business issues come into play, but we like to think that if a good solution is, is needed and we're designed in the commercial discussions go a lot smoother because the value proposition has been well spelled out and it's understood what they're paying for. So if you're an OEM, that's got a roadmap and you're trying to get into an industry and it was one of the many disparate industries that, that our friends here talked about, 
how would they reach out to you? Our contact information is on our website. We're fairly well known in the industry with, with a lot of our distribution partners and the manufacturers we represent. So we'd love to hear from you, www.logicsales.com. And that's L-O-G-I-X sales.com. Kenta, do you have any final questions or final thoughts here? Uh, yeah, one thing that resonated with me a lot is you need to know the audience and understand their needs and uh, uh, provide a solutions or products that uh, uh, solve their problem instead of talking about cool technology. That one uh, resonated with me a lot. Uh, having said that, we also are trying to listen to customers and partners and understand their need and provide solutions. Do you have any, what, one last question from me is, that, is there any, some missing features or your demand on connectivity platform or IOT platform that make your life or your development easier? There just, I think that we find, especially if you want to make it specific to oil and gas, that making it easy to use, whether that be pre-certified solutions, provisioning challenges, all the, we call it the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, the cost of the hardware, the Underneath, it's all the certification, regulatory provisioning, all the challenges that come with all that. I think any solution for connect, I'm talking specifically for connectivity in the oil and gas industry, I think any of that, that makes it easier to integrate and deploy globally, maintain over the life. We talk a lot about the long lifetime requirements for a lot of these products. They don't want to have to redesign this every two years, every three years, and up in the last. So I think things that can address those challenges are always good and maybe missing a little bit in the industry today. That sounds yep, aligned with what we are trying to do. And definitely uh, these are uh, things we are, we will definitely keep in mind. Thanks. What you guys were just talking about is something that our sales team has been saying for a while about total cost of ownership. It's not just mm -hmm. that one thing. Do you have a, a, that, that conversation when people are picking up the phone and the problem? It sounds like you really have great way of looking at the problem. It's not just cost or just spec, but all those other pieces. So what kind of, what's the total cost of ownership that a oil and gas industry is looking at? Are, is it just those pieces or how do you talk about it with your customers or even the OEMs? I think it's project by project base. You just gotta, you know, walk through it and it's peeling back the onion. You obviously don't want to expose a subject if it's not needing to be discussed. It's up to us to kind of surface what is the customer's concerns and then address them as they come up. But in, at the end of the day, it's about total cost of ownership and can they see the costs associated with redesigning their system to incorporate what we're suggesting that they design in. And that's the million dollar question, right? So yeah, some customers, you have to explain it. Some customers you have to, you start with probing questions, where your head is, what kind of quantities are you looking at, where are you deploying this? The best quality of a good salesperson is curiosity. And if you just try to understand what they're doing and what they know and how their approach is, sometimes. You don't have to convince them of anything. They already know and you show them what they're looking for. It's easy, but some customers have to be educated and they need to be told what, what not to do. And sometimes it's tough because they look at just the hardware costs. They don't look at the total cost of ownership. And that's a tougher sell. That's why we hire technical people that 
understand all those things and kind of communicate those things. We're hiring, by the way. So if you know of any electrical <laughs> engineers in the Dallas marketplace, please send them our way. We're, we're growing by leaps and bounds. No, seriously, we are growing a lot in the need for our ability to be a, like a consultant, if you will, to the manufacturers we represent, but also to the customers we're selling to is a huge thing. Our business model is expensive because an electrical engineer is basically 2x what a business level person commands in the marketplace from a compensation standpoint. So we're, we've got a real expensive business model, but we think it's much more highly effective. It's like a Navy SEAL as opposed to just a Navy sales shipboard crew member. I always think about a lot of that business development roles that when I'm shopping for something, I want answers right away. And the sooner I can talk to someone that can speak the speak, talk the talk and deliver answers, it's usually the the sooner you get to trust. Oh, is it you're hiring EEs to talk to other EEs then? Exactly. So we want to be able to talk the same language, but we also want to come into the room at, in the beginning, what's the word, have our reputation precede us so that we don't have to get through the, Hey, does this person know what they're talking about thing? So yeah. if we come in and they looked on LinkedIn and they got, Oh, this person actually used to do design work and they're going to come in and talk to me about my new design. Okay. This person's probably going to know a little bit about how to help me. So the customer is looking for help. Just like what you said, Ryan, you don't, you don't want to fumble through trying to figure out the answer. You want someone to just come by and just say, boom, here it is. This is what you should, here's the options, provide an education of the possibilities, and then drill through some questions and try to move forward with the design. Don't you ever feel sometimes life is just a movie and you've already seen it and what's coming in the next scene. You're like, nope, there's a monster in there. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, but I never try to act like I know it all either. There's always sometimes good reasons for things and customers don't always want to tell us everything. And so there could be reasons that we don't know. There's a humble way to educate and ask questions. And so I think that's part of our secret sauce is we, we have good reputation. We have credentials, if you will, which help open the doors. But at the end of the day, we can also read people well and know who we're talking to and make sure we're not. We're prying for polite persistence, probing in the right way. Yeah, Jeff, you said something really that I, that resonates strongly, which is sometimes it's just not worth like opening the can of worms for some things. That's a problem that after we've established more trust, we can introduce that to them rather than distract them and create now multiple problems or create analysis paralysis. How do you know how much to just it, it, tell them just enough? To let them know, hey, by the way, I know what I'm talking about versus not scaring them off with all of the baggage that, that could come with a project because TCO is a hard sale. Yeah. You know, it's really customer engagement and being close enough to the customer to continue the dialogue. It's not a one and done conversation. So, you know, the, when the customer, you have a, you gather information as the program matures and you understand where what the value proposition is that they're looking for and you accentuate on that and you'd be a good listener, try to make sure you hear what they're trying to say or other people associated with the project. What are they saying? And just try not to oversell it. There's a lot of complexities and engineers are 
they love going down a rabbit hole and part of our job is to try to help steer them away from that so their management can see a completed project. Do you ever arm them with something like a high quality technology evaluation process, whether it's weighted scoring or is there anything that you do to your clients to help focus on what's most important if they're evaluating multiple options? Test data. Uh, we give them development kits so that they can verify the performance themselves. We give them real uh, applications that they can perhaps mimic that don't uh, compromise any kind of integrity or IP from a competitor of sorts. But you just give them that comfort feeling that they're not the first person, that, the first company to do this. And there's, here's some examples and that kind of thing. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. And that is our time for today. So thank you and good luck. If you enjoy these conversations about connectivity and the operational challenges that people face every day, consider subscribing and leaving a review. We'd really appreciate it.